0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than what divides us. I also want to say this month marks the seventh year First Draft has been on the airwaves, All I can say is I'm stunned. The first show aired on June 3rd, 2013. It's been an amazing seven years, and honestly, when I started, I didn't have a vision beyond two episodes, but here I am, and guess how many author interviews have aired? I know you can't answer me right now, so I'll tell you. 297. Yes, 297 interviews. I'm truly incredulous thinking about all the books read and hours spent editing and thinking about these conversations. I feel so incredibly fortunate to be doing this podcast that I love and sharing it with you. So thank you so much for being on this journey with me, whether you began with interview one or are just joining for your first taste of first draft right now. I'm humbled and honored that you are listening and I offer all the gratitude in my heart to the 297 authors who have said yes to an interview and have spent an hour of their time with us. I look forward to bringing you more conversations in the years to come. Sometimes I dream about seeing all of you in the same room someday. Who knows? Maybe that can happen. Until then, again, thank you for being here to listen. Coming up, an interview with Lori Gottlieb, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone.
1: Well, I think that we always have the choice of what we want to put in our minds. And so I think that's an extraordinary kind of freedom that we often forget about.
0: We'll be back with Lori Gottlieb in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 297th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going, As our society is changing to independent folks like me, producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you'll receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this request seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely that you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Lori Gottlieb, author and psychotherapist. Her nonfiction book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is a New York Times bestseller. She writes a weekly column for The Atlantic called Dear Therapist and has contributed to The New York Times, The Washington Post, The L.A. Times, Slate, Time, Salon, and others. Her books include Marry Him and Stick Figure. She began her career working in television and film, then went to medical school before deciding to become a psychotherapist. She has a private psychotherapy practice in Los Angeles. Lori Gottlieb's book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, explores the lives and issues of four of her therapy patients juxtaposed with her own narrative of her healing journey after an unexpected breakup and commitment to her own therapy. The book exposes universal truths about being human and shows how vulnerability, patience, and the willingness to look deeper into ourselves are the exact traits that can save us. began the discussion focusing on COVID-19, which was just beginning to rage in our country when we talked.
1: Well, I think like everybody, it's an adjustment. And um, I'm doing relatively well. Uh, During the, in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak, my father died, uh, not of the coronavirus. And Like many people who have experienced that where somebody was ill and they happened to die in the middle of a global pandemic, um, there was another layer of, I think there's our collective grief that we're all experiencing a lot of loss in a lot of different ways. Um, But there's another layer to it for me, which was the loss of my father and not being able to have... People come to the funeral and not being able to sit Shiva and do the kinds of rituals that we do when somebody we're close to die. So, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's that's unique to me. But I think lots of people are going through their own version of um, their regular lives going on while the coronavirus is going on.
0: Well, I'm really sorry about your loss. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. I hope maybe there's a way to sit Shiva later.
1: Yeah, well, I think everybody just has to be really adaptable right now. And, and I think that one of the inspiring things that I've seen is how resilient we all are. If you had said to us months ago, you're going to be trapped in your homes. many people are going to be very ill, people you know will die um, of, this vi- of a virus. And nobody can touch anything, and you're going to have to sterilize your home several times a day, and you're not going to be able to see or touch another human being. Um, We would say, I wouldn't be able to survive that. But yet, here we are. And I think people are being really creative about the ways that they're finding to connect with people, to maintain their emotional health, to deal with loss, all of those things.
0: Yeah, I know in your, I listened to your TED talk and one of the things you mentioned in that talk was freedom. And that's something that we value and need so much as humans. And I'm I'm curious about what that means now and, and does it change? I mean, when I think about it, I think about how much our society might be wrapped up in that freedom. Like say, for instance, someone thinks that they want to quit their job and that they can't, they really could because there are so many jobs out there. But it's such a different landscape. And I'm wondering what you think about the concept of freedom and, and how much society and life reflects how we're able to think about that.
1: Well, I think that we always have the choice of what we want to put in our minds. And so I think that's an extraordinary kind of freedom that we often forget about. So the virus might infect our bodies. Um, But we get to choose what goes in our minds. And so I think that's really relevant now with the coronavirus, where you can click on the headlines every hour, or you can choose to put something else in your mind. You can futurize or catastrophize about something that hasn't happened yet and may never happen, or you can stay grounded in the present. So I think that we have, as humans, because of the incredible capacity of our minds to go to different places, um, we have incredible freedom. We just often don't take advantage of it. And I think now a lot of people are discovering that there's great power in taking advantage of that.
0: So will you tell me a little bit about the genesis of, of your book? Maybe you should talk to someone. And in general summary, you are a therapist after trying a few different careers, being a writer, maybe thinking you're going to be a doctor and then landed on therapy and you work in LA and then you end up having a, a breakup, an unexpected breakup with not just a boyfriend, but a fiance. And then you your book is sort of sharing and chronicling your journey after the breakup to your own therapy, as well as inter intermingling stories of people who you provide therapy to.
1: Right. So the book, um, you know, this wasn't the book that I was originally contracted to write. Um, originally, I'd written a piece, I write for the Atlantic, and I write now I write a, a weekly column called Your Therapist for the Atlantic, but I also write features. And back then I had written a feature Um, It was a cover story for The Atlantic, and it was called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness Might Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthood. And it was one of those pieces that went crazy viral. And of course, um, publishers wanted me to write that book. And I said no, because I didn't want to write a book about overparenting. I didn't want to um, write a book that I felt somehow not connected to, meaning I felt like I said what I wanted to say in the piece and I thought it was a a piece that could help people, um, myself included, by the way, as a parent. Um, But I didn't feel like I wanted to just eke a book out of it because a publisher wanted me to write that book. And so I said, no. And I said, what I'm really interested in are the adults. I'm really interested in what this concept of happiness means for adults and why people are struggling with that. And so the publisher said, oh, you want to write a happiness book? And, <laughs> and I thought, no, I don't want to write a happiness book, but I'll, I'll make it my own. And, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever you want to kind of call it in shorthand, that's fine. Um, but as I, as I started to try to write the book, and I said try to write it because I actually couldn't get myself to write it. Um, I was also a new therapist. And the, the disconnection between what I was seeing in the therapy room every day and what I was writing about or trying to write about. Was so vast that it was like this cognitive dissonance. And I just didn't feel connected to this writing about happiness. Um, I feel like, you know, one thing you learn as a therapist is happiness is sort of beside the point. And I don't mean that we don't want to be happy or experience joy. What I mean is that happiness as a byproduct of living your life in a meaningful way is, I think, what we all are aiming for. But happiness in and of itself as the goal in and of itself is kind of a recipe for disaster. And people see that time and time again. And I think also what was so much more interesting to me than, than the studies on happiness that I was researching for this book were the, the stories that I would see every day in the therapy room. And, and I think people think of therapy as, you know, kind of depressing. People come in and they have problems and maybe people think of them as complaining I didn't see it that way at all. I thought it was fascinating, and I think it's fascinating still, um, where I think people come in and you see these these people taking risks and changing their lives in ways that they would never do otherwise. People really taking off the mask for the very first time, people discovering who they are, being willing to see their, their blind spots. Um you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's really heroic to come in and sit in front of a stranger and say, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to be vulnerable with you in this way in the hopes that I can navigate through the world in a different way outside of this room. And so ultimately, I ended up um, canceling the happiness book. Um, and it wasn't easy, you know, it sounds like kind of, um, like, well, an obvious thing, you know, why didn't you just cancel the book you didn't want to write? Well, I needed that money. First of all, I'm a single parent, and I needed that money to pay for the internship that I had just done to get my uh, license to become a therapist. And so I didn't have that money anymore. Um, So I couldn't pay the publisher back. And so I was sitting there going, I have to deliver this book. And my agent at the time, who is no longer my agent, um, kept telling me, you have to write this book. You have to write this book. And, um, you know, and finally it was my therapist actually, who said, why don't you get a second opinion? (laughs) Right. Um, and you know, like, do you have to write this book? Is there a way that you can do something else? Um, and so I ended up canceling the book and I didn't have another idea for a book, but one night I just started writing, um, about all of the things, that were on my mind, and and so ultimately that's what became maybe you should talk to someone, and I follow the lives of four seemingly very different patients as they go through very different kinds of struggles, but ultimately I think are very similar. And then there's a fifth patient in the book, and of course that fifth patient is me as I end up going to see my own therapist after that breakup that you alluded to.
0: How did you decide to include yourself as one of those patients and weave it back and forth?
1: I think that one of the things I say at the very beginning of the book is that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. And I feel like there is a way to tell the stories of those four patients where I'm the expert. And then there's a way to tell those stories um that really reflects what I'm trying to do in the book, which is to write about the human condition and write about our shared humanity. So it's not a book about therapy. It's a book about us, all of us. Um, And I think that we see ourselves most clearly when we're reflected in other people's stories. And so I wanted to share stories, but I felt like there was a whole story missing. And who am I? You know, I think that there are these tropes of of therapist in popular culture. And one is sort of like the brick wall, the, the person who's the tabula rasa, you never get to know anything about them. And I thought, well, that's really weird, because that's not at all. You know, it's, it's I'm I'm just a person in the world, too. And I was also going through something. And I was also going to therapy at the time. So I felt like it would almost be disingenuous not to include me as one of the patients, me as one of the stories.
0: And so how did you deal with the anonymity of the characters that you wrote about these four people in therapy um, and including their stories? I mean, obviously you talk to them, but I think a lot of writers have to grapple with how do you put real people in your books?
1: Well, it's interesting because I had written so much about my life before becoming a therapist and about other people in my family, for example. Um, But this was different. And so I made a very conscious decision that uh, I wasn't going to write about anybody that I was currently seeing because that would just be impossible to do work with them as a therapist and then also be, even if I was writing about something that happened five years before, um, there was no way that I could unblur those lines. Um, And I think, you know, in terms of anonymity, well, you have to change everything that you can Google nowadays because of the internet. So Um, It's not just about changing names. It's about changing, you know, any sort of, you know, detail. And I mean, one example might be, and this is not with the patient, but this is, um, there's a point in, it's a good illustration of how I had to change things and and the rigor with which I had to change things. Um, At one point, I end up Google stalking my therapist, (laughs) which again, this is one of those things where I was very, um, you know, I didn't clean myself up. Um, In terms of the making myself a, if you want to call it a character, but telling my story. And so um, I Google set my therapist and I find a Yelp review for him and the the person who reviewed him um, was complaining about everything. And this person, you know, was disappointed in everyone and everything and gave like one star to everything. And um, one thing that she complained about was she was on a beach at a hotel and um, they, she stepped on something and it cut her foot. And the thing that she claimed cut her foot, um, it was hilarious, this thing. It could never have cut her foot. And it was just, it was, it was priceless. It's, it's like a writer's dream. You couldn't make that up. And I couldn't include it because you could Google that thing. You could figure out, you know, who she was through the Yelp review. You could figure out who my therapist was. And then at some point in the book, you find out that the wife of someone I'm seeing is actually seeing my therapist that I learn about midway through the book. And um, you might be able to figure out who she is. And it's you're sort of down that rabbit hole. So I had to change it to a rock. So it's those, those kinds of things that I had to change.
0: And you, you started out talking about, you know, you were saying in therapy, people have their blind spots. And when you start the book, we see a blind spot that we learned you really had because you have this boyfriend and you're going to get married and you think that you're very happy. And then he just kind of announces one day, like truly out of the blue, like, I can't be with you anymore because I don't want to have a kid. And you've had the kid the whole time. So You you initially it's like you want to blame him for everything, but then you had to sort of reckon with your role in that.
1: Right, right. And I think that I'm no different from anybody else. So the the story that someone comes in with is their version of the story. And I think that a lot of times people come into therapy and they want the therapist to validate their version of the story. And, you know, I talk a little bit in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is what all my friends did with that story. And it's what our friends tend to do is they just back us up no matter what. So, um, you know, their, their response to the whole thing was, you know, he's a jerk and you dodged a bullet and thank goodness you're not with him because look what kind of guy he is. And, you know, he's a sociopath who would date you for all these years and knowing you had a kid and the kid wasn't hiding in the closet. And so, you know, why, why now? Um, and so, you know, I wanted my therapist to back me up too, because I think that there's something that feels really, um, comforting about having someone say, yeah, you're right. Um, but it's only comforting in the short term. It's only comforting in that moment. And in terms of, you know, long-term understanding and long-term change, what you want is you want wise compassion, which is what, My therapist did, which is you hold up a mirror to someone and you help them to see themselves in a way that maybe they haven't been willing or able to before. And so one of the first things I say as I'm, you know, telling the story of what had happened, you know, I'm crying and I said, you know, and now I've wasted all these years dating him and half my life is over. And he just glommed on to that phrase, half my life is over. Um, and that's really what the therapy was about. It was about what I was wrestling with at midlife in terms of, you know, I think a lot of us when we're younger, we sort of skate through and we're not really being that intentional about um, how we're spending our time and what we're spending our time on and who we're spending our time with in the same way that when you are more aware of the limited time that we have, you um, you know, you you start to think about that. And I wasn't really consciously thinking about that. But underneath all of, you know, all of the sort of drama of of the breakup, it was very much on my mind. And this breakup really brought that to the fore of here I am at midlife. I've had this big change. My future looks different from how I thought it was going to look. And what now? And it wasn't really about the breakup. The breakup was the catalyst. But then, so much else was going on. As you see, as I sort of reveal things to my therapist in um, in doses, really, you know, when I'm when I'm sort of ready to talk about it.
0: And what was it like to be a therapist in therapy? Did was it hard to let go of like the techniques that you knew and the way that you would maybe get out of yourself and look at yourself? from the patient and a therapist point of view?
1: In the beginning, I think everybody comes to therapy wanting the therapist to like them. So, um, you know, and it's ironic because I think that 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 trying to get the therapist to like you makes you less likable. What makes you likable is when you're just real and the therapist can see the truth of who you are and not, you You know, you have your mask off and you're not, you know, a lot of people will be like, look over here, look over here, look over here. Here's this story, here's that story. And aren't I entertaining? That's not how they talk, but that's that's sort of what is happening process-wise in the room. And it takes a little while for people to really, Um, you know, not perform, to get rid of that performative aspect in therapy. And I think for me, it was no different except, well, I would say it was slightly different in that I think on top of wanting to um, be liked, I wanted to appear more together than I really was because I was a therapist, that there was some shame around the fact that, you know, how could I be in this situation? How could I not have seen this, Um, especially because I'm a therapist?
0: When I think about therapy, I think a lot about narrative and point of view, and that people are really coming in and telling their stories, and in some ways, you're maybe an editor, like both a line editor and a story editor for them, and I'm wondering what you see as the relationship between narrative and therapy, and how you might have used that to write this book or structure this book?
1: Yeah. So when you said earlier that I had these different careers, I did have different careers, but I think they all had to do with narrative. They all had to do with story and the human condition. And so, you know, originally I worked in in film and then I moved over to network television and we were telling stories. That's what we were doing, but we were telling stories about the human condition. And one of the the shows that I was working on um, in television was ER. And when it was just premiering, and it was its first season, and I would spend a lot of time in a real ER, and I remember feeling like, wow, look at these stories. In the real ER, um, there was a, you know, there's this inflection point where people come to an ER. No one comes to an ER because they expected something to happen, and so um, I was kind of saying, wow, I would go back to work, and and we'd make up stories, but it, it sort of lacked the richness of the real story. And I don't mean that the stories on ER lacked any sort of richness in terms of storytelling. What I mean is that there's something about seeing, looking into the the eyes of somebody as they're going through something in the ER. And so um, it it was a consultant on the show who told me, he said, you know, maybe you should go to medical school. You seem to like it better here than you like your day job. And, um, and I was like, I'm not going to medical school. I was, by the way, a French literature major in college, just for context. Um, but I ended up going to medical school and I went up to Stanford. And when I got there, it was that it was like 1999, 2000. And it was that transition in the medical profession to what we call now managed care and a lot of my professors were saying, you know, what you're really interested in, being with people, guiding people through their lives, being part of that story, helping them with their own story, um, you're not going to really have that because of the way that things are going to be structured. And so I ended up deciding to leave medical school um, to become a journalist. I had been doing some writing in medical school and actually before, a little bit before medical school to help um, pay for <laughs> everything. and. Um, And so as a journalist, I felt like, well, I'm helping to tell people stories. And it was later after I had a baby when, you know, I was working for as a journalist for about 10 years. And then I had a baby and I felt like I needed to talk to adults during the day about not baby things. And I loved, I loved being a mom. I wanted to be a mom so badly. But at the same time, I was going a little bit crazy um, without having those adult conversations, and so the UPS guy would come, and I would sort of detain him and say, "How about those diapers? And do you have kids?" And and he would like back away to his big brown truck and try to avoid me. And so eventually, um, I called up the dean at at Stanford where I was at medical school, and I said, "Maybe I should come back and do psychiatry." And she said, "You're welcome to come back, but you would have to do." Internship and residency with a baby, with a toddler. And you'd be, you know, a lot of psychiatrists do medication management, and it's not the kind of work that you want to do, which is really embedded in story, right? Um, And so she suggested that I get a graduate degree in clinical psychology, which was exactly what I did. And I really feel like what I do is, even though my job title is therapist, I feel like my real job is editor. And I feel like what I do is people come in, and we're all unreliable narrators. We all tell a story in from our own subjective point of view. You know, we, we leave certain things in. We, we, certain things don't make it in the story. We emphasize certain aspects of the story. Um, and, and I think that we, we want our audience to hear things uh, in a way that will make us seem... Um, like, we will, we will come off well. And so, um, and so I think what I do, and then, and then I think there's also these older stories that people carry around, like, you know, the stories of, um, like, I'm unlovable, or I can't trust anyone, or nothing will ever work out for me. And, you know, those are old stories that, that you know, are really, um, like, told from a younger person's perspective, but the adult person is carrying them around. And so I help people to edit those stories so that they can um, not be so trapped by them. I feel like a lot of people say, you know, I want to go to therapy because I want to get to know myself. And I, I say that a lot of therapy is actually getting to unknow yourself. It's, it's unknowing, um, you know, some of these stories that you have been telling yourself that have kept you trapped, that have limited um, what you can do in your life.
0: And did that help you write this book?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, because I think that when I sat down to write the book, I was very clear about what the stories were. Because, you know, when you're writing nonfiction, you already know the plot. <laughs> There's no, you know, I think that I think that writing fiction is so much harder, because you have so much that you have to invent. So I already know the beginning, the middle, the end, all of the all of the beats in between, because I lived them with these people. Um, but I also think that what I didn't see until I sat down to write were a lot of the connections between the stories. And I think that you know, the end product, I feel like all of the chapters are in conversation with one another. and i I had to struggle I had to like really struggle with structure because in the beginning, um, you know, I play with time a lot in the book where like you're going forward, you're going backward, you don't really know. That's, that's what therapy is like. People will come in and you might hear a story that happened 20 years ago or you might hear a story that happened yesterday or you might hear a story about someone's, the way they imagined something in the future. So you're always in a different um, place in time. And I wanted to write the book that way as well. And so I think that, that when you actually sit down to craft a book, it has to make sense to the reader. So it might've made some kind of internal logic to me as a therapist, but would the reader understand it? So I had to really make sure that the chapters spoke to each other in, the, in a way that a reader who is not a therapist, that, that it would make intuitive sense to that reader who's not a therapist.
0: And you said that the people that you featured, the four uh, clients, were people you had gone through therapy with in the past? Yes. And so how did you pick those particular stories? And just for our listeners, their, their names are John, Rita, Julie, and Charlotte. And uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll do a very quick summary. Um, John is a very successful television producer and writer who you later find out lost a child and ha- is having a difficult marriage and kind of thinks everybody's an idiot. Rita had a really hard um, life. She grew up n- with not much parental guidance. She married um, an alcoholic abuser who abused her children. They, she uh, sometimes let that happen because she was afraid to leave, and so her children disowned her, and she was much later in life. I think she was 70, around in her 70s, and she um, had just given up. She, she was like a dark cloud. Um, Julie was young and dying of cancer. And Charlotte was also young and kind of lost um, in her way. She would binge drink and date the wrong men, and it was a very hard path for her to find her own voice in that. So th- that's my summary of the characters, and you feel free to to add. But how did you pick their stories?
1: Well, it was really hard to choose the stories because as a as a therapist, you you see so much, and I think that um, everything that I see, I felt like was so relatable it was so universal like when you describe these people a lot of people would say well I don't identify with any of them but I think when you read their stories you absolutely identify with every single one of them and so I think in choosing the stories I wanted to choose people who would seem kind of foreign on the surface to the reader that the reader would say yeah that's not me You know, I, I, don't, I don't live that way I don't feel that way I don't move through the world that way um, and, and for the reader to go through this process of discovery of, whoa, I have so much in common with these people, right? So, um, so I could have picked so many different kinds of people. Um, I chose these partly because they seem very different from one another and, and maybe very different from the reader. Um, and I also chose them because I had to make some clinical decisions. And there might have been other people whose stories I also wanted to tell, but I didn't even ask because I felt like um, even though I wasn't seeing them anymore, that they would either be too excited by the fact that I would be writing about them and that would bring up all kinds of issues that I didn't think would be helpful for them. Or they would feel some kind of tacit pressure to say yes, even if they had some, um, some hesitation around it. And so I really had to consider who the person was and, and what this experience might be like for them.
0: Has, have any of them read it and come back to you? Oh, with... all.
1: Oh, yes. No, I mean, everybody. Yes, of course. They've all read it. Um, you know, it's been interesting because I think that um, when I when the book came out, which was last April, so a year ago, um, I didn't know, you know, I think it's still on the New York Times list now, and, and I had no idea how many people were going to read this. In fact, when I canceled the happiness book, my it was told to me, you know, nobody's going to read this book. So I thought like three people would read this book. So I wasn't so concerned about a lot of things that I think have come up since then, um, just because a lot of people have read it. But when, I, when the book first came out, I was going to go um, to New York and launch the book. And I just said to my patients, Um, you know, I'm going to be away on such and such dates and here's who's on call for me and I'll see you on this date. And I never, of course, said that I was going to launch a book because I I keep that very separate in the sense that I never talk about my work, um, obviously in the therapy room. And so, um, when I came back, um, you know, by then the book had sort of taken off and, um, some people came in and they sat down on my couch and they said, so I read your book, (laughs) right? Um. And people had all kinds of reactions to it. Some people were disappointed that they, like they were reading the book. I was away. They weren't talking to me. Someone was on call for me. I never mentioned a book. And so they said, you know, they were reading the book and they kept turning the pages and turning the pages and thinking like, am I going to show up in this? And, and then they were so disappointed when they did not So that was interesting. I never anticipated that reaction. And then there were other people who, um, you know, who who really felt like, it gave them permission to talk about our relationship in a way that people should in therapy. But I think that a lot of people don't know that you're really allowed to talk about your feelings about the therapist, your feelings about what's going on between the two of you in the room. It's not just about all the relationships out there. And so much of, of the growth and change that people make happen because of what is actually like sort of the microcosm of the real world happening in the therapy room where you kind of try on certain things in this relationship in the therapy room that then gets translated to what happens out there. So it's, it's, the reaction has been interesting, not just from the people who are in the book, but from the people who are not in the book too.
0: So you said that you tried to, to make these characters, you you selected characters, who you thought had very different stories and that people wouldn't be able to relate to at first. And, you know, all humans really have, you know, great, great longings. And some, you know, most people also have great, great loneliness and great aspirations. And so you do get to um, see that in all these people. And I was thinking when I was reading that, that it it, it is the same in books, that uh, especially Fiction characters when you set up a, a a beginning of a book and you have this this character that's longing for something and and maybe the book is is the journey of them trying to achieve that but it's the same in long in in nonfiction and I, I'm wondering if you thought about like did you think about the idea of want and longing in your patients in and in your book?
1: I think want and longing are all over the book. I think. Um... Loneliness is all over the book, regret is all over the book, uh, death meaning becoming more aware of our mortality, the whole concept of life having a hundred percent mortality rate right, and not just for other people. I think that I think that it makes people like a good novel, right? Um, you know, my, my favorite novels are, are novels that make me think about those same almost existential questions, but they're really about what gives our lives meaning and also struggle. So you can't have a good, a good story without a good struggle. And we all struggle. If you're human, you struggle. Um, and, and so I think that the ways that we move through our struggle is what makes the story interesting. It's not the struggle itself. It, it could be anything. You you know, I could have, I could have chosen so many different people, like we were talking about, with so many different kinds of struggles. Um, but I think the way in which people emerge from the struggle, or manage the struggle, um, or, or how the struggle um, lives inside of them, and they also go on, that's what I wanted to write about. And so I think that. You know, it it doesn't matter whether, you know, I'm reading a novel or I'm reading a book like this or writing a book like this. My reading taste is I wanna read about the human condition. I wanna read about something that really makes me feel
0: in the beginning of the book when you realized that you probably needed therapy, you asked a friend of yours who's a therapist for a recommendation for a quote friend that was for you. But also I'm wondering if you can talk about your relationship with Wendell, your therapist
1: weirdly, my whole point in writing this book, well, I wouldn't say my whole point, I would say of the many points of writing this book, one was that I wanted to help people not to feel so much stigma around struggle. And so it's ironic that when one of my friends who is a therapist said, you know, maybe you should talk to someone because I was really sort of falling apart after this breakup. And I I am very open in the book about all the ways that I'm falling apart. and. I thought, well, what you know, I I guess I really worried that people would be reluctant to refer people to me if they knew that I was going through some you know, like this very difficult time in my life. And so I, you know, and it's almost like, it's sort of like water, water everywhere, but not, not a drop to drink where I'm surrounded by therapists, but I can't see any of them because you, because of conflict of interest, you can't see anybody that you work with. You can't see anybody that you have an outside relationship with. So it had to be a therapist that I'd never encountered, which was really hard when, you know, it's sort of a small world in, um, you know, like clinicians who know one another. Um, and so um, when I, f- I finally called up a colleague and I asked for a recommendation, I wanted a specific kind of therapist, which is you know very funny in, in hindsight because at the time I thought, well, I don't want to see a woman because she will um, she will validate my story. even though I wanted my story to be validated, I felt like I wanted it to be a really objective test. And so if I get like, a guy who will also say that the boyfriend was an asshole, then I know that I was right. <laughs> and it's, it's ridiculous because, of course, I know that a, a female clinician would not have just simply validated my story either. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I, I go through this whole thing and I'm asking for a friend and I get this recommendation for myself, of course, and that's how I end up seeing Wendell. And Wendell is very different from me, um, not only in terms of um, – the way he practices. But also, I was a very new therapist at the time, and he was very seasoned because I came to this much later in life. And so he was just very experienced. And the way that he practiced was very different from the way that I think in graduate school, trainees imagine they will be a therapist, which is, you know, acting like a therapist in the room. He just brought his whole authentic self into the room. And I don't mean that he was crossing boundaries. I don't mean that he did anything inappropriate. I don't mean that he, you know, self-disclosed. I mean that he was just himself and he was very kind of quirky and he did some quirky things and, but they were very effective. And, um, and so the relationship with him is a big part of the book, which is, you know, my being able to trust him, to open up to him, to, um, you know, to see beyond his sort of exterior, and I had a lot of sort of judgments and um, preconceived notions about him in the beginning that turned out to be very different from how he actually was. So um our relationship forms, you know, obviously sort of the backbone of the book
0: you you intersperse your your narrative and your stories with philosophy and some quotes from literature and also just probably it's called like psychological theory, I guess you would call it. Yeah. Um, so there is one theory uh, that there's four ultimate concerns by a man called Irvin Yalom. And those four ultimate concerns are death, isolation, freedom and meaninglessness. And I was thinking a lot about how those do sound very universal. Also. In literature,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think you know the reason that there's so much um, crossover between, as we we're talking about nonfiction and fiction, is because I, I think that the best novelists are people who have real psychological insight. Um, you know, their their characters are so multifaceted. Their characters are so complicated, um, like all of us. So I think that you know, and I think that those themes are pervasive in literature because we all deal with them in different ways. And when I say they're complicated, it's like, take freedom that you just mentioned. So freedom is an ultimate concern because we think we want freedom. But in fact, so many of us would rather not have freedom. and And this is illustrated when um, my therapist says to me, at one point he says you remind me of this cartoon and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars desperately trying to get out but on the right and the left the bars are open no bars it's open right and so why do so many of us like stand there shaking the bars when there are no bars on the side and and that's because with freedom comes responsibility And so if we walk around those bars, we have to take responsibility for our lives. We can't blame this person or this thing or this circumstance out there. We actually have to take responsibility, and that means that we are responsible for our choices, for our decisions, for wherever we go when we walk around those bars. So so many people would rather be trapped. Um, and kind of blame everything on, on someone or something else. And you see that when people come into therapy and they say, I want, I want things to change in my life. But generally what they want to change is someone or something else. And so really the work starts to happen when they realize, oh, I'm the person who has to change. I'm going to have to change something. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that there's, you know, that there aren't difficult circumstances or there aren't difficult people in their lives. I remember when I was training, one of my clinical supervisors said, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes, right? So like, sure, you know, there are lots of people and there are, they've come in and they have difficult people in their lives. Um, but what is your role in those interactions? What is your What choices do you have in terms of how you respond? And so that's what walking around the bars is. So when Yalom talks about those, those four ultimate concerns, um, it's not lack of freedom that we're most concerned about. It's too much freedom. It's almost like I, I, I like to think of, you know, like if like a fishbowl, right? So a fishbowl is not enough freedom and, and, and the ocean is too much freedom. But an aquarium is what most of us want, where there's some containment, um, but it's not so vast that there's no structure and it's not so constrained that you're cramped up in a fishbowl. And so I think that a lot of us, Really work hard to find the right balance, and and the minute we find enough freedom, we get really scared because all of a sudden we start to say, "Oh, I don't trust myself. I don't know what to do with this. Um, I'm going to have to be responsible now."
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yeah. So you brought up Yalom earlier, and um, I'm going to read a, a, a passage from his book um, called "The Gift of Therapy," and I'll tell you, I'll read it first, and I'll tell you why I'm choosing it. Like all therapists, I have favorite mobilizing techniques developed over many years of practice. Sometimes I find it useful to underscore the absurdity of resistance based on past irreversible events. Once I had a resistive patient very much stuck in life who persisted in blaming his mother for events occurring decades previously, I helped him apprehend the absurdity of his position by asking him to repeat several times. This statement I'm not going to change mother till you treat me differently when I was eight years old from time to time over the years I've used this device effectively with variations in wording of course to fit a patient's particular situation sometimes I simply remind patients that sooner or later they will have to relinquish the goal of having a better past so I love this because I think that that's what so many of us are dealing with, you know, no matter how great our childhoods might've been. Right. So it doesn't matter whether you, whether you had a difficult childhood or you had a really great childhood. I think that we carry around our histories with us. And sometimes we don't even realize it. And I just love the way that he, when we talk about narrative, when we talk about how he kind of rewrote this, this story for this person, um, that this person was really walking around with this idea that they weren't going to change until um, you know, they were healed from the past, let's say. But really what that person was doing was they were insisting that 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 the mother redo what happened when the person was eight years old. And so I just think it's really effective in what he said about um, sooner or later, they'll have to relinquish the goal of having a better past. That That we can't really move on until we accept the fact that we can't change what happened in the past. We can change what happens now but we, we can't change what already happened. So anyway, I just love that. It's something that I, I think about a lot, both in writing and, and in therapy work.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah. So here's something that, that changed a lot. Um, I was trying to, this is a chapter about a patient that I'm seeing. She's not one of the main patients. Um, and I, she's, uh, she's someone that is having a lot of trouble, um, not only in the relationships outside of therapy, but in her relationship with me. And I have a dream and um, she kind of is the impetus for this dream. And this is the only time, I think there are only a couple times actually that I talk about dreams in, in the book. Um, but I think here I was trying to talk about how, Our dreams help us to see things that we don't normally see, and generally there are fears. And I had this long, long pages of, like, all this stuff about fears that I thought was really brilliant, by the way, um, as one does with really bad material. So um, so it was just really long, and it was very much, you know, I was, like, over-explaining everything. And then I just, like, threw it all out, and I made it one paragraph, and here's what the paragraph is. It says, It's no surprise that often we dream about our fears. We have a lot of fears. What are we afraid of? We are afraid of being hurt. We are afraid of being humiliated. We are afraid of failure and we are afraid of success. We are afraid of being alone and we are afraid of connection. We are afraid to listen to what our hearts are telling us. We are afraid of being unhappy and we are afraid of being too happy. In these dreams, inevitably we're punished for our joy. We are afraid of not having our parents' approval And we are afraid of accepting ourselves for who we really are. We are afraid of bad health and good fortune. We are afraid of our envy and of having too much. We are afraid to have hope for things that we might not get. We are afraid of change and we are afraid of not changing. We are afraid of something happening to our kids, our jobs. We are afraid of not having control and afraid of our own power. We are afraid of how briefly we are alive and how long we will be dead. We are afraid that after we die, we won't have mattered. We are afraid of being responsible for our own lives. And so those pages and pages, that's what I was trying to say in those pages. And finally, I just said it. I just said the words. And, um, and I think it's much more effective.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write at my, um, at my desk at home. Um, I move around, so um, sometimes I'll write in the den, sometimes I'll write in the bedroom. Um, I have different desks. I never write in my therapy office. Weirdly, um, I feel like I'm I'm so focused on that other piece of my work that I just I never write anything but chart notes in that office. All my writing's done at home.
0: What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I think because I have the dual career that I feel like, interestingly, I, it's kind of like I wouldn't want to do writing all the time and I wouldn't want to do therapy all the time. That I feel like I, I do the writing to have some kind of break from the therapy and I do the therapy to have some kind of break from the writing.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I'm one of these people that never shows it to anybody but my editors. And then I show it to people. So, <laughs> so the first person who's always going to see it is going to be the editor who's working on that um, project with me. And then, um, like with the book, I gave it to, I don't know, like a dozen people um, who were all in the acknowledgments. And, um, you know, and, and then I got their feedback.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I think that one of the things I was, I, I guess that was not really my struggle with writing. Um, I feel like I the rejection because I had always thought that it would be very hard to be a writer. Like, I never expected that, that it would be, you know, like, even if you write something that you think is publishable, I never thought that it would be easy to get published. So the fact that I wasn't rejected, you know, even if I got 10 rejections and there was one where I didn't get rejected, I always was, I was so glad just not to be rejected by that one, um, that I didn't focus on the ones, on, on the rejections.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: <laughs> I think my favorite word is a word that I use in the book, ultra crepidarianism. And it means the habit of giving advice and opinions outside of one's knowledge or competence. And in the book, I talk about how, um, you know, people are always asking for advice. They want to know, what should I do? And I don't know what they should do because I'm not living their life. So even though I know what I would do in that situation, I can't make that decision for them. And I think that that applies just in the world with all of our relationships um you know we shouldn't give advice or opinions outside of our knowledge or confidence we should help people we should listen to people we should help people to hear themselves we should help people to get to their own place of knowing that we all have inside um but i think we need to be really careful about thinking that we know something that we don't about somebody else's life
0: thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it
1: Oh, thank you so much. I I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Lori Gottlieb, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Ann Patchett. We talked about her nonfiction book, This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers coming up in the next few months on first draft interviews with Tara Shea Nesbitt, Michelle Bowdler and Marie Mutsuki Mockett. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes first draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for first draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.